This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you under the yellow tape. Hey everyone, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm Howie Ryan. It's been a couple weeks since our last episode, and um, what we're going to do, what we've been doing, is talking about a lot of current events and controversial cases and things like that. And the reason I do that is because what you're being told by the media is usually not accurate. So we're going to continue doing that um, in future episodes, but today I want to I switch gears a little bit. I want to talk to a friend of mine, and I want you to meet him. Uh, his name is Jason Casper. He is a best-selling author, USA Today best-selling author. Um, I want to talk about his writing, but I also want to talk about his background. And the reason I want to do this is, I one, I want to introduce him to some of you that may not have read any of his stuff yet. And I say yet, because I think by the time we're done here, you're going to want to. And um, I want to talk about his background, because his background um, lends itself to the writing and the writing it comes through in his writing. And it's one of the things that gets me really uh, into his books. Um, so, uh, Jason, thanks for being here. I appreciate you uh, coming on to talk to us. Hey, Howie, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. Oh, no problem. Um, the writing thing, man. I, I, see, I got introduced to uh, Jason through a mutual friend. Um, the, the mutual friend, they were, both, they were both in the military. They were both in the U.S. Army. And, um, uh, you know, we got talking about writing and, uh, the introduction was made and we met, it was, it was pretty, it was a memorable meeting for me. I'll tell you why he was very intense. Jason was very intense. He was very <laughs> focused and driven. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday, you know, we met in a restaurant, we were all having a beer and he just, he was taking notes and he was writing things. And I was like, wow, man, this guy's, he's, he's on point. But, um, then I, the, the reason that it struck me was because it, it made sense because of your background. So you were in, you began your career as a member of the United States Army, correct? Yes. Yeah. I enlisted in June of one. June of 01. Take us through like your path in. First of all, why? Why, why the military? I developed a pretty healthy obsession with the military in high school. Didn't really have any family in it. Um, it just kind of happened. And throughout high school, I was kind of split between trying to go the pilot route and preferably be a fighter pilot or going down the special operations road. Uh, and the tipping point for me kind of happened when I read Black Hawk Down, which is the story of uh, the Battle of Mogadishu in October 93, uh, which was you know mostly Rangers and some special mission unit guys. And reading that book just kind of threw me in to 
you know, the concept of 19 year olds, you know, serving in combat with the Ranger Battalion, I kind of fell in love with it at that point. The only college prospect I had was applying to West Point and they, uh, they said, thanks, but no thanks, which if you saw my high school transcript is pretty understandable. <laughs> so, uh, I got a Ranger contract right when I turned 17 and did a one year delayed entry program to finish up my senior year, uh, and then shipped out right after graduation. Wow. That's, um, I th- and as the story goes too, I, I think it's important to tell the story as we go into your writing because there's a lot of folks out there that enlist in the military, and um, your road going from enlisted to where you ended up is pretty remarkable. It's not, it's not something you hear, but but I think it's also good that people hear from you because it's what you do, what your choices are in, and how driven you are. Because I mean, you went from a an enlisted 17 year old to uh, on a def- on a deferred entry to the captain an officer commanding an ODA a green beret special uh, uh, special forces team correct yes yeah that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty distinguished career path and a pretty big difference from being the enlisted kid that walked in and i think it's a great story because i mean let's face it right kids young men join young men and women there's a lot you can do and you i mean you're living proof of that you you took it in another direction and you did it and you ended up at West Point, correct? Yes. Yeah, I got there eventually. Three applications. It worked out. Well, third time's a charm, right? I guess. Yeah. It's good. It's all good. Um, during your career, you um, tell tell us a little bit about, uh, you and I spoke before, the 375, the Ranger Battalion, and and uh, and a little bit of your career path. Sure. So uh, I went into basic and then advanced infantry training uh, to get my job qualification. Uh, and I was kind of towards the end of that in the final field exercise when 9-11 happened. Uh, there was just, you know, one day that the instructors, like never, the drill sergeants never came out of their you know, uh, instructor shack. And we sat around for a couple hours and eventually one of them came out and was like, hey, who's got family in New York City? A few hands went up. And then they were like, who's got family working in the World Trade Center? There was one guy and they pulled him aside, uh, brought him into the building. And then, you know, they made the announcement to the rest of us that, you know, America was under attack. So we graduated basic training right after that. Um, and I had a three week tour at airborne school to do, to get qualified to jump out of planes. Um, and while I was there, the unit that I was about to join, uh, Charlie company of third ranger battalion, uh, did a combat jump into Afghanistan. So my timing could have been better, but it was about the quickest I could get there. Uh, <laughs> did the three week at the time it was called ranger indoctrination program, which is, kind of a smoke fest slash selection program for them to pick who they want to go to the unit. Um, once I passed that, got the Ranger scroll um, and, you know, they give you the tambourine and I reported in to <laughs> a group of red blooded meat eaters who just got back from Afghanistan. So being a new guy there was, uh, it was a wonderful experience. Um, and for me at the time, exactly what I needed. I was, I was kind of rambunctious uh, as a teenager. So it was what I needed at the time. I think I would have done terribly in college. And uh, they quickly put me in my place, got me trained up, um, made me part of the team. And then we went to Afghanistan in 02. I did a trip there. And then we did the invasion of Iraq in March 03. And then we came back from that. I uh, shipped out to the West Point Prep School. Now, the prep school is, is across the street, so to speak, right? Gets you ready yeah. for military yes yeah at the time it was now it's located at west point at the time it was fort monmouth new jersey um so i did a year there uh, a lot of school work it's pretty much meant for prior service people who didn't have the high school 
academic chops, which is where I fell. Um, and then a lot of athletes as well that they wanted to get ready for West Point. Mm-hmm. So I did that for a year and then went uh, straight into the West Point uh, pipeline. So four years there, branched uh, infantry. I think I was the last person in my class to get an infantry slot without having to give an extra three year commitment to it. Um, and then, yeah, went from there, graduated, went to 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg and uh, is a platoon leader, which is a phenomenal job. Um, you know, your second lieutenant or first lieutenant in charge of a platoon of, you know, 35 to 40 guys, uh, including attachments. And then did a year long trip to Afghanistan during which I put in my paperwork to uh, go to special forces assessment and selection, which is the army green beret program. Um, came back from Afghanistan, finished up my garrison time, went to selection, uh, got picked up and then went to uh, third special for, or actually I went to the, uh, the Q course, their qualification courses, a uh, little under two years where they do all the language training, survival training, the job specific stuff, all the ground tactics, and then have a very, uh, large culmination exercise. Uh, once you graduate that, walk across the stage, get your green beret. Uh, and I went to a third special forces group, which is also located at Fort Bragg. Um, and that was the best time of my army career. Uh, I did two trips to Afghanistan and then one to Africa. And then when it was my time to, uh, get rotated off of a team and kind of end my role in the tactical piece where I'd be going out with the guys on mission. I, uh, dropped my paperwork to get out of the army and went full-time into writing. I think it's amazing. I think a lot of people don't realize the path, you know, they see a movie or they see something on the news and they see, you know, somebody from one of these elite military units and they, they don't really, I don't think they fully understand how you get there, that there's, there's qualifications, that there's a selection processes that, that are very stringent and you're being chosen by people that have actually done it before you. And the time, the time from even getting selected to get getting schooled up and trained up for missions and, and, and getting all that under your belt before you actually go. Uh, one of the things, and you and I have spoken in the past, I mean, you know, between meeting you guys like you and Mike, who is our mutual friend, and, and some of the guys that I met in working um, that case in Texas, the Chris Kyle case, some of, the, mm-hmm. some of his former team members. The thing that impressed me the most you know, from all of you is when you have a conversation, I remember this very vividly the first day we met when we were talking, whoever was talking, I happened to notice you looked at them so like intently, like you listened. So it's kind of funny when you tell the story, like saying, well, my high school, you know, chops weren't very good or my transcripts weren't very good, but you're (laughs) like, but I find you to be an extremely intelligent person, which means that it's not that you didn't have it. It's probably that you just, you know, you like you said, maybe rambunctious, but all of you guys at those levels, those tier one kind of military levels, man, the, the intelligence is something that is not portrayed to the public. The the razor sharp intelligence, the, the logistical planning, all of that stuff that you guys do that's that is uh is probably one of the most impressive parts. You know, they like you said, you know, a bunch of you got rotated into a, a squad of, of meat eaters. You know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, well, the media or the movies portray them as like knuckle draggers. It's really not that way. I mean, yeah, there is that element. There is that switch you can turn on and it goes that route. But a lot of you guys are like engineers. I mean, you know, the things that you figure out and you plan and the mission planning and the ops plans and all that is, it's amazing. So I am not surprised that you were able to transition into what you're doing now. And one of the things that I want to talk about 
which I want people to understand about not only you, but about other people coming out of the military, is oftentimes we hear the stories of the struggle of the people coming out of the military and not being able to transition or adapt. And there are a lot of those and I get it. And those people, you know, they need all of our help and, and we should do it. But what we never really hear about sometimes is the guys like you that started planning probably when you were in, as a matter of fact, I know you did because you were writing, we were, we were in contact. And when you stepped out, you stepped into another world and a lot of that training probably a lot of that regimentation, that, that, uh, precision planning. I mean, you tell me, did it help you in that transition? Yeah, I think it, um, you know, it helps and hurts. It helps in that you've got these, you know, you've, you've definitely got the work ethic and the skills and you understand there's 24 hours in a day and you, you know, use your time very well. Um, the, the tough part is leaving like a really tight knit community and especially, you know, in a, probably at any point in history, but especially like, you know, leaving on the, on the downturn of a war. Um, yeah, there's, you know, the transition thing is, it can be very difficult for that reason. You go from having like a team of brothers you're working with every day to kind of being out in your own world. That's very strange. And, um, you know, not, there wasn't a lot of job crossover in terms of uh, being able to use my, my previous skill sets. Um, in terms of career, yeah, to say the least. But yeah, I, I definitely had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of issues too. I think once you step off the the hamster wheel of constant training and deployment, uh, there's a lot of time to like process things and and try to adapt. Um, and you know, it's it's easy to brush it off. So yeah, it was good. But I I went through the whole gamut of every kind of post traumatic stress therapy, and nothing worked. And it took me a long time out. It was January 2020. Like everybody complains about 2020. That was the first year that I've averaged six hours of sleep a night. Just finally came down enough and uh, got my shit together to kind of have a normal functional life, not just pretending to be functional on the outside, but actually, um, you know, living that way. So, yeah, and I think the difference between a lot of guys who have a lot more trouble with is they just didn't find, you know, that combination of things that worked for them or maybe didn't have the right support network people. But I was I was very fortunate in terms of, you know, my wife and my kid and everything um, mm -hmm. just kind of drove me to to figure everything out and become the best best human being I could be um, for them. And it's it's a process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was a long road. You know, I I did a lot of stuff that didn't work. Tried a lot of different therapy treatment options, like you name the alphabet soup of CPT, EMDR, you know, SGB, fill in the blank. Um, yeah, you know, I and I did it. It's it's it's. I'm glad you brought that up. I I. I I wouldn't have thought to bring that up. I'm glad you did because some of the other folks that I have sp spoke to in your, in your previous, you know, profession there, they said the same thing, but they, they described it. One of the best ways I heard it described was <clears throat> you're, you're flying at a, a different altitude or you're running at a different speed. And it's like all of a sudden just hitting the brakes and it, you know, switching gears and then operating in a, it's just in a totally different world. And that, yeah, that can be even in, in, uh, to an extent in the world that we were in, in law enforcement, I mean, you're, Every day, you're dealing with death. In our, in, you know, in our world, it was death, murder, whatever it may have been. But the difference is at 25, 27 years of it, you're kind of like, I got to get out of here. I, I like, I have to go. I can't do this anymore. And um, you, at that point, you kind of, somebody always told me when it was time to go, you'll know. You will just wake up one morning and you will know when it's time. Right. And that, that dude, that day hit me like, like, like in the head, just boom. I walked in, I was like, I'm done. I'm just done seeing this now. And we always say, and you guys probably say the same thing. 
I miss the clowns, not the circus. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is because, like you said, the guys you're tight with, but yeah, the other shit you got to deal with is just, it's, God, man, it's exhausting and it kills you after a while. It just beats you down. But um, I, 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 some of, now let's t- get into a little bit now. Well, let's get into a lot of it of your writing because this is kind of how we met. And um, I am, I, I, I actually love reading your stuff. And I, I read one of the very first ones you did. And um, I find them to be the kind of book, and everybody's different, but this is the kind of book that I can't put down or I don't want to put down. Your latest book, The Enemies of My Country, the one I just read, I didn't want to put it down. I was getting pissed because my wife's like, hey, dinner's ready. I'm like, oh, I just, just give me a few more minutes, you know, because I'm like, I'm not done with the chapter yet. I, I want to just keep going. She would kind of look at me like, really? You serious? You can pick it up later. But those are the kind of books. And I, I, I Tom Clancy was a, a favorite of mine. And the thing I loved about Tom Clancy was his technical information, the accuracy of it, and how he spun it into the story, how it was real life technical stuff and it was spun in. You do that. I find that you do the same thing that Tom Clancy did that roped me in as a reader. And um, some of the stuff I'm familiar with, others I'm not. But like when you talk about some of your your characters and the things that they're doing, especially in the action scenes, I I, I know you lived it. I mean, I know you, so I know you lived it. And I'm, I, I, I know the accuracy of it. And then the other parts that you discuss are things that I'm familiar with. And I'm like, man, he's spot on. And that, to me, that's a big deal. That's a big deal when authors um, have the actual experience and the topics they write about. Now, I'm not, you know, when you read this, <laughs> David Rivers does some does a few things outside the rules of law. I'm not saying that was you, but I'm saying, you know, the way they did it comes, you'll know where it all comes from. And it was, like I said, man, I, I didn't want to put it down. Now, do you, do you find, do you tap into a lot of your military past on, on all those things? I mean, there's a lot of it. How much do you have to research and how much just comes from, hey, man, I've been there, done this? I, it's it's kind of a divide of both because, I mean, anybody in special operations will tell you, like, you step out of that community for six months and you're a dinosaur in terms of, you know, tactics, equipment, and everything else. Um, I think the the biggest boost to my, you know, to my writing career from when I was in was just the people you work with um, and just living day in and day out with people who've been doing this for years. Um, you know, my team sergeant was on his, like, 16th rotation the last time we deployed together. Um, and then, yeah, definitely the experiences in combat and then just the war stories you hear and then just seeing the way these guys interact. Like, how do these people, you know, talk? How does it shift during a gunfight, watching them get switched on as soon as the first shot comes across? And I like injecting just kind of those elements of authenticity into the writing. Oh, it beca- it, I'll tell you, in, his la- in this book, <clears throat> it was very clear. Uh, your, your characters that are on his team, um, you can see when it, when, it, when it ramps up and when it goes. It's, uh, it, it's like the, it's like their machine kicks on and they just go into it and it becomes very, it's like, I don't want to say it's like you're there, but it's kind of like you're there and you're, you can see their face. You can see, um, like you said, that switch, they're all business. I mean, they're goofing around, they're breaking each other's balls. They're doing all that cool shit. And then it's go time. Just like that they're on. And that's the stuff as a reader that I look at and I go, okay, I like this because this is real. These people exist. These people are real. This is how they would do it. And it's being written by a guy who's been there, done that. And that to me as a reader is important. 
There's a lot of good writers out there that are good storytellers, but they've never done it. And maybe it's me, but I can tell, I know exactly where they fall off. They fall off in dialogue. Now, when I read this book, there is a scene where they're kind of hiding. They're forced into an area where they got to lay low. And they're in a hotel room or a motel room. And they're eating pizza and they got to just hunker down. And it was it was actually probably as you wrote it, I don't know that you thought about what a, what a great scene it was. But to me, it was one of the best scenes in the book because they're talking to each other. And your dialogue is about as authentic as it gets. It puts you right there. And I've, I've been with small units for long periods of time. I've been out on jobs for days at a time. And you know, you, man, you hit it on the head. The conversation devolves into this, <laughs> into this prepubescent, idiotic banter that's like priceless. And it, it, for everybody that would read it, it's funny as hell. But if you, but especially when you've lived some of that, you're like, oh shit, man, this is, I've been here. I've been in this room. I've heard this conversation. And that to me is where uh, a, a big difference is. You can do the action scenes great. A lot of writers can do them well. But you get to that kind of moment where they talk, where that dialogue happens. And that's, to, I don't know, man, it's just me, but it's, it's a separation. That's where I look in the dialogue is when it's on and it's authentic, it's pretty badass. You know what I mean? Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And the, the dialogue piece is kind of near and dear to my heart because I'm sure you've experienced the same in the law enforcement side. And I've experienced it meeting, you know, cops or SWAT guys and then just meeting guys across different combat communities and the military side from all different branches of service. And there's just a certain mindset and gallows humor and just candid way of speaking that, you know, you almost get the sensation you're meeting the same person like over and over. Like you can just look at a guy like, yeah, this is the same personality type as the majority of this community is. So it's, it's always a huge compliment to me to hear from, you know, active or prior military and law enforcement, first responder guys who are like, you nailed this part, you nailed this part. I felt like I was there. That's, that's the goal for me. Oh yeah. The dialogue was on. And, and, you know, you'll hear other people in, in, in those fields, they'll talk about dark humor. I just uh, read a book by uh, uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw and he mm -hmm. talks in his injury and how they joked with each other after he talks about the dark humor and how it gets you through. And uh, I, I know that you can attest to it. And so can I, it's, there's times where uh, that does get you through. And I can remember specifically times when people would hear it. You know, you're standing around in a city street where there's a shooting and, or, and there's, you know, there's maybe people dead laying in the street and you're still working and you're having conversations or you giggle or you laugh or this or that. And somebody shows a video later and they, and they want to make an issue of it in court. And they said, you thought this was funny. You know, they, they kind of challenge you. You thought it was funny and they don't always get it. What a defense mechanism humor can be. Sure. And, and how it pulls you out of the darkest places. And when you're surrounded by that group that does the same thing, it just... I don't know how to explain it to somebody, but it just makes it okay. You know, it's just, we're all here together. We're all screwed up in the head. We're all getting more screwed up every day, but we're all going to do this together. And it's that, that got me through a lot of shit through the years. And I still have that dark sense of humor. So I, I really, I think you crushed it with that, with that whole thing, that, that dialogue part. Well, thank you. Yeah, man. Um, now let's talk a little bit about your, your drive. Dude, there's people, I know some pretty famous authors and they work very hard 
and they, you know, they get into a book and they work hard and they do the research and this and that. But I don't think I've ever seen anybody that can actually sit down and push these stories out. I mean, it's, it's, I guess what I'm getting at is, are they in your head already? Are, are you, are you on a chessboard? Are you five moves ahead? Or does it just come and you do it as it comes? I wish I could say I was five moves ahead. For this series, um, beginning with The Enemies of My Country, I, I did the longest planning I've ever done. I, I mapped the 10-book outline um, and kind of saw where this where this arc was going to go all over the world uh, for this particular team. And once I had that and I could kind of have a – even you know, the later book outlines were kind of skeletal, but seeing this full track kind of put me on course to be like, okay, this is how I really want to dial in the first book. Um, but other than that, there's always, there's always ideas on the back burner. And then as soon as I get one manuscript off to the editor, I really sit down with the next project and spend, you know, a week or two just shuffling note cards and everything, um, planning scenes and climaxes and everything else and kind of hash it out until there's just a tipping point of you hit this critical mass of like, this is it, this is the story. And I can sit down and start writing. Is it in order? In other words, is it from beginning to end? Or do you say, well, I have this, excuse me, I have this scene, I can put it here later, or I can put it in now. Or in other words, because I've done a little bit of this. And there was times when I wrote, I said, I know what I want to do here. And I wrote it, and then I just put it to the side. Or do you go straight from beginning to end? I'd like to go from beginning to end. It never quite works out that way. Sometimes I have an idea for a particular action set piece that is dead center in the middle of the book. And I use that as an anchor to build the book out both ways. Sometimes I I know exactly how it's going to end and then go reverse forward. Sometimes it's literally the opening scene. Um, But whatever that initial spark of inspiration is, I just latch on to it and hold on for dear life. (laughs) Wow. Because to me, that was always uh, about writers that I found that um, I remember Dan Brown gave a seminar Um, and one of the things, I guess every author gets, you know, the question, which I'll probably ask you at some point during here, you know, what advice for new writers or whatever. And Dan Brown said, don't, don't start a story until you know the end. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I get it. I guess that gives you an aim point, you know, your little front sight focus. All right, I'm going there. How am I going to get there? And, but I, I don't know if everybody does that or not. It's, it sounds great, but I, I, you know, some of these stories and some of these podcasts that you listen to on writing, everybody has a different, uh, like a different track. Sure. I guess it's just kind of in your head where it goes. And sometimes it's organic and it just kind of comes out as they sit in front of the, sit at the keyboard, but it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And let me ask you this. How many times have you, I'm gonna, this is a two part question. How many times have you sat down? And you wrote something and, and then looked at it three days later and go, what the hell was I thinking? Or how many times have you looked and said, wow, that's pretty good shit. I can't believe I wrote that. You ever have either of those moments? Yeah, I've had plenty of both. Um, the writing something and then looking at it later and realizing it shit happened to me a lot uh, when I was starting out. And those moments started transitioning to, wow, this is great for me personally. I'm not advocating this as a method. Uh, for me personally, that the tipping point was when I started studying some story structure and kind of outlining my books, um, even if it wasn't super granular, if I if I had an idea of like, you know, 25% in this is what's going on. Here's the story midpoint. Here's 75%. This is how it's going to end. Here's the resolution. Once I kind of built that framework, um, for me personally, that just brings out 
the best quality writing of which I'm capable. Like that's, you know, right now to outline I'm working through, I'm writing the manuscript. Um, I'm, you know, just the story itself is so enriched in your mind from having the, you know, kind of the mental roadmap of where it's going to go that that's what brings out the best dialogue, the best scenes. And when I have, you know, spontaneous inspiration, a new character appears or something happens that I didn't see coming, it's all within that framework. So for me, that's what really um, enriched my process. Do you have a spot? I mean, do you go to like a, do you ever go to like an internet cafe or do you have a place in your house where you hunker down a little bunker? Where I, t- I t- Oh yeah, I'm, I'm in it now. Uh, I took over kind of the smallest bedroom um, in my house. And it's got all my military shit on the walls. Like everything is near and dear to me in life um, in terms of physical possessions, like packed into this room. So it's like the walls are covered with plaques. There's like a stuffed pig head that my dad got me for no apparent reason. And it's just <laughs> kind of this. And then all, all the war stuff on the walls, it's just kind of like my den of creative insanity. And like every morning you know, when I come in here, it's just this, it's, it's my space. Like it's my happy place. Um, yeah, I wouldn't rather be anywhere in the world uh, to work. That's pretty cool because there's so many people go to a place, whatever place that may be, and it's like, oh God, I'm here. You know, it's yeah, I'm do this again. So to be able to walk in there and be pumped up. All right, so now let's talk. And I think a lot of people, no matter what they do for a living, can equate or can relate to this. The beverage at the desk, depending on the time of day, is there a coffee, or is there a favorite coffee? Or is there a brown watery substance like bourbon? Like that's me. I'm a, I'm a coffee and bourbon person. So some people have it. Some people get creative. If I, if I try to write something, whether it's a report that we're working on a case or I do something late at night and I, and I pour a glass of bourbon, I'm asleep in 10 minutes. So I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't do it all the time, but do you have a, do you have a method or a, a setup or a, you know, a fuel? Yeah. Yeah, I'm also a um, a coffee and bourbon guy, generally in that order. I always do coffee in the mornings. I do bulletproof coffee um, nice. that I blend myself every morning. Um, and then I used to do a lot of bourbon while I wrote. When I was first starting out and didn't know what I was doing, um, that was like a real good accelerant for me. And now <laughs> I've, I've kind of hit a point with experience where it, it slows me down more than it speeds me up. So the only mm-hmm. time I use it now, case in point, the, the book uh, you just read, the enemies of my country. Um, I had to get that in like really early because my editor I've been with from book one to book 10, um, mm. she was due for a baby. And I was like, I, she understands me. She knows what I'm trying to do. I don't want anybody else editing this work. So I had to like really hit the afterburners. So, you know, I told my wife like, Hey, I, you know, I have to have this in in two weeks. Like it's going to get a little weird. And I would bring, you know, bourbon up to my office. And when I would hit that, um, you know, we just run out of steam. I can start mm-hmm. drinking and just immediate Polish blood. That's my second wind. And I can kind of <laughs> go, kind of go endlessly. Um, so I do really, and I just, I love bourbon. What's actually sitting on my desk right now, um, a fellow writer friend of mine uh, named Brian Shea, he's a crime writer, former detective. Mm-hmm. He sent me for Christmas a bottle of uh, Irish whiskey called Writer's Tears. Oh. So I kind of put it on my desk as like a joke. It's going, like, oh, things get, get bad. Um, you know, I'll break into this. And it's the longest I've ever had a bottle unopened in my life. Um, and now I just like every day when I go to the desk, like, yep, it's not supposed to be easy. It doesn't have to be easy. Like get to work. Uh, yeah. And I don't know when I'm going to tap it, but the day's coming. Well, it's true. I mean, if it was like anything else, right? If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Um, sure. 
All right, give me a top, give me a top three or a top five bourbon. Sure. So Woodford Reserve is my my go to. That's that's pretty much my number one. Um, mm-hmm. And then in not too much of a particular order after that, um, I really like uh, Blanton's. Mm-hmm. I like which everybody likes likes it, especially since it's been hard to find. Um, I really love um, Bib and Tucker, which is a lesser known. Mikey actually introduced me to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something you can actually even here in North Carolina, where a liquor store is like a Soviet bread line. Uh, it's all county controlled. It's really <laughs> sad. Um, I can I can find it every liquor store I go into, and that's a bottle I've been reaching for more and more lately. So that's pro- that would probably be my top three. Nice, that's good. How about coffee? You said bulletproof. You blend it yourself though. You do a little mix, or what do you do? Yeah, I do my own. Uh, another thing, Mikey introduced me to is kind of a productivity brain booster so yeah every day for coffee i do the whole shit i do the whole bean grind it in the conical mm-hmm. burr grinder Look at let you, it huh? oh yeah I, I do the the portion of water let it bloom for 30 seconds oh, pour in the you, rest. Do pour, you do a pour I, over i do it all yeah and then the french press four nice. minutes it's it's the one thing i do that i think has kept my wife around all these years through everything else is every day she gets the no shit barista cup of coffee nice well let me let me run this by you do um do you ever do you ever do a latte or a espresso or anything like that or or is that when you're I, out somewhere? If I got to go to a coffee shop to write, um, like something's going on at the house and I just need to get out and get some work done, I do. I'll do the red eye, like just black coffee with a couple shots of espresso in it. That's about as exotic as I get. Okay, all right. I do a thing up here where a very good friend of mine, they run a place called the Farm at Gnome Hollow, and he has a small maple syrup company right here does it taps right here in the trees in my own backyard in his backyard and uh, he sells it around and one of the things i've done is replaced a little of the sweetener with a little bit of pure maple syrup wow and man what a difference so i'll have to send you some of that you can give it a whirl tell me what you yeah i'll have to try that out it's because it's pretty damn good it's kind of like a treat i don't do this shit every day but i i, <laughs> I will do it but it's pretty good what i want to ask you about now <clears throat> is when you started because there's a lot of guys out there. I know firefighters. I know paramedics. I know police officers, military. A lot of these people have a lot of stories. You know, they have a lot of stories. Their lives are a story. If you were at a function and everybody at the table knew what you actually did in your time, they'd be asking you a million questions. And actually, some of them probably do. They do that with us, with homicides and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and famous cases or some high profile cases you work on. And a lot of them, want to write. You know, they do, they want to sit down and write. And my my advice to people is always write, you know, listen, you don't, you're not necessarily going to become a famous author. Not everybody does, but writing to me is a little bit, you know, uh, therapeutic, cathartic, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Sometimes it's just, you you could just kind of go somewhere for a little while and you write some things down and some of them are funny. Some of them suck. Some of it's pretty decent. I don't know, whatever. But when you first got in self-publishing, you went that route how hard how hard is it let's do it you know i know you're with a publisher now which i'm going to talk about in a minute but that self-publishing part is it's a lot of work isn't it yeah so i was actually self-published from november 2016 when i first um published my first book independently to august of 2020 so i did three years hard time uh, on the indie circuit (laughs) so the the process is easy in terms of writing, editing, formatting, using freelancers to make your cover, uploading, uh, all pretty seamless courtesy of Amazon. Um, 
that the tough part is turning that into a functional living. Um, there was, from talking to authors who came along before me, there was a golden era where Kindle first came out mm-hmm. and you could put something up uh, on Amazon and there wasn't, there weren't that many Kindle books out. Um, so it was kind of a golden era where you could get immediate traction and people could find your stuff easily. Uh, those days came and went long before I ever got in. Um, the tough part of indie route for me was the advertising piece because you pretty much have to master these advertising systems, uh, which are Amazon controlled uh, in order to get any visibility. I mean, to the point I looked up my latest release just to check ranking on my phone, I think yesterday, and there was seven search results. When I Googled this book title, Jason Casper, I'm Jason Casper. It was seven search results. One was the actual book, and it was buried in between a, a bunch of ads for other books, which appear identically, other than the word "sponsored" and mm-hmm. you know size four font. Uh, most of which were my my publisher paying for my name to show up when you search for it. So mm-hmm. the the advertising piece requires a lot of mathematical prowess, a lot of experience in Excel worksheets and everything, which is why a lot of successful um, Indie authors uh, come from backgrounds and entrepreneurial stuff, or they were accountants, or they worked in website design or search engine optimization, a lot of marketing backgrounds, um, because they understand how to like thrive in that environment. Uh, I didn't, and I relied almost exclusively on just cries for help to other authors, a um, few which really dove in and helped me like, look, you have to keep an Excel spreadsheet to track ACOS and ROI for your ads. Um, and I kind of limped along in that process, doing it um, with extensive help from people who are a lot smarter than I am, um, until I hit a point where I had enough books out that it just made more sense for me to spend more time doing what I love, which is writing, and outsource the rest of that to a uh, to a publisher. And and you were uh, we had talked in the past. You said it's a it's like almost fifty percent of your time, right? Doing the other stuff, taking away yeah, from for- writing time. For me, it was uh, about 50-50 split, and that's been, generally speaking, that's the experience of most of the authors I talk to about it. That's amazing because, you know, you hear a lot of people say, well, you know, if I can't get a publisher, I love how they say that. Well, if I can't get a publisher, like almost like, well, if the publisher makes a mistake and doesn't take me, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to self-publish. And, I, you know, on the face, that sounds great, but when you hear that part of it, you know, think about 50% of your time. Now, not only that, a lot of these people that want to write are not going to be full-time authors. So you have a job, you have a family, you have commitments, and then you have writing and then cut whatever that is in half. And it, it becomes, it becomes a chore. It sounds great on, uh, on the surface, but that's, I mean, it's fantastic in the sense that it, it does allow, you know, people to get their stuff out there. And, but there is a other side that uh, a lot of times they don't talk about. And I mean, you pretty much explained it pretty well there. That's, that's kind of tough. Um, if we were having this conversation two years ago, um, Howie, I would tell you like, oh, it's it's great. You get in. It's going to be tough. You're going to have to figure out the ad piece. But the um, the ads have become so sophisticated and the bid prices per click have just continued rising um, exponentially yeah. without any end in sight that even in the past you know 24 months, it's become uh, a lot more prohibitive for somebody to do it unless you you really have certain aptitudes to run that on the side in addition to producing new content. Yeah, that's 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 a that's almost like another full time job right there. Now you now are uh, with Severn River Publishing, correct? Yes. And I 
talked to you a little bit about it and I looked it up. What I really like about it and the, really, the reason I want to talk about it and let everybody know who they are is they're veteran-owned and uh, operated, veterans and families of veterans. And uh, I think that's a big deal. You know, going back to what I said earlier about your service and everything you did and all the other people that you did, you know, when you see these veteran-owned companies, uh, everybody has their own opinion. I, you know, on, on this podcast, I try not to give opinions a lot, although sometimes I let it out. Um, but I, I'm a big, I am a big, big believer in supporting veteran-owned businesses. I mean, you know, you guys gave up some of your life and some of you gave your life. You know, so when you see these guys come home and veterans uh, jump into civilian life, and open companies. It's not a little thing, man. It's not a little thing because the rest of us were here. We had time to plan and plot. They come back. So, you know, uh, the country owes you a debt, uh, you and your colleagues, your, you know, your, your fellow service people. We actually owe you a debt of gratitude we can never repay. So whenever there's a veteran-owned company, I will always bring it up and I will always talk about it. And Severn River is, is veteran-owned and operated. I think it's awesome. I went on the website and looked at some of their stuff. I looked at your stuff. One of the things I, I like is, you know, they come right out and tell you, we handle brand management, advertising expertise. They do your cover designs and things like that. I think it's great on their website to tell you that right up front. And then they, they give you the, their website is easy. Um, they show you who their authors are. All their stuff is right there. You get a little bio. It's, pre it's pretty impressive. I was actually very impressed. And um, how long have you been there now? Uh, I signed with them last August, so it's only been a few months now, but I, mm -hmm. I kind of go back with the founder, Andrew Watts, um, who started the company. He was one of the authors back in like 2018 when I'd been trying to sell books for a year and not having much success. Um, I just reached out to him, cold called, I just saw he was at the top of all these bestseller charts um, in the thriller genre. And I was like, oh, this guy's, a, he's a Navy guy, like maybe he'll, you know, take pity on me. And he just answered like he'd been waiting to hear from me. We set up a call, started talking, became friends. He kind of taught me everything I know. He's like, dude, you can't just put books out. Like you have to advertise heavily, market heavily. He left mm -hmm. the military, spent four years at Procter & Gamble um, doing marketing, brand management, brand creation for them. So he's had the world-class training in this. Um, he taught me everything I knew about how to do it for myself and was the reason I stayed independent as long as I did. Um, so when he started that publishing company, uh, about two and a half years ago, I had total faith and confidence in him because I knew, in my opinion, the guy was just a genius. It's like, Oh, this company's going to succeed. This is going to be, if I put my books anywhere, it's going to be with this publisher. And when I finally made the decision, I just wanted to, I, I just wanted to write full time and not uh, be messing around with the ads and everything. I just offered him my entire backlist. I was like, take it all. You can have all my future books. Um, I'll be 100% in with uh, SRP. And it was one of the greatest things I've ever done for my writing career because my output is up to you know four books a year now. It's been wonderful. Which is incredible. For the people that have never tried to do this, that's like unheard of. It's, uh, I, don't know, I, I, got, I don't know how you do that. Uh, the, the amount of... The amount of in your head has got to be a thought process and planning and, and, and creativeness is, is, is off the charts because that's not an easy thing to do. Um, the other thing I like, and this is um, something you do, is as you sell your books, a percentage of your gross is donated to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation, correct? Yes. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think that's friggin' awesome, man. I, I, I could sit here and talk an hour about it and I don't even know what it, everything about it yet, but I just, I know it's good and I want to hear more about it. Sure. So the, uh, special operations warrior foundation is a like 40 years running uh, five-star rated charity. Uh, they do, and I donated to them actually when I was in the military, you know, they, they have military specific donations. You could pick a charity and uh, donate as part of this annual drive. And I always picked them like, since I was a private in 01, I just, I like their cause. So their, their mission is twofold. The, the main thing they do is any special operations soldier who dies in training combat doesn't matter. Um, they pick up the tab for those kids to uh, go from high school to college, like wherever they're at, uh, their education's paid for for life, advanced graduate schooling. Um, so they kind of take over all the education expenses for all the children of all the special operators who die. Uh, and then the other thing they do is emergency financial grants. Uh, whenever a, a special operations soldier is, is injured, combat or training anywhere in the world, like by the time the military's sorting out the red tape of getting, you know, a flight approved for the wife and working the, the funding channels through the unit, like they've got a spouse on a plane to a hospital in Germany or wherever her husband was medevac to. Um, and then they provide financial assistance until he's uh, returned to duty. Wow. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that, um, you know, it, it breaks my heart because you turn on the television and you see all this stuff on the news and it's just such crap and the way they, they handle everything and the news is fighting with each other. So much of that time on TV and so much of that time in front of the public's eye through, through media, we, we could talk so much more about these types of organizations and this organization in particular and what they're doing. I don't care what side of the fence you're on politically or anything like that. If you can't get behind that, man, there's something wrong with you. Uh, these are the people that, uh, that are putting it all out there. I mean, I, what, what really struck me about what, too, what you just said is you donated to it when you were in. Now, I get it. You know, you're thinking, well, it could be me. But still, everybody that's listening to this should think about it. We're talking to a guy today who's a captain of a Green Beret operational detachment, a, 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 a you know, special forces team. And he's donating to a thing that may ultimately pay for his family if he's getting hurt. You talk about somebody's giving. I mean, you gave enough. You gave way more than enough. And then you're still doing it. And now you're out and you're still doing it. So <clears throat> one of the things I, I kind of want people, uh, really one of the reasons I want people to meet you, like through this, that, that listen to this podcast, is to kind of like give you a, 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 I hope that when they listen to this, they go, wow. I don't know who that dude is, but I'm going to, one, I'm going to read his books and what a good dude. I mean, holy shit. Did he put it up for everybody and you're still doing it today. And I think that's friggin' awesome, man. I really do. Um, I want to talk about the, a couple things that I think are bizarre about, about you. What these couple things that you do kind of as the rush, and I'm assuming you, I don't know if you still do them. First of all, what in the hell is an ultra marathon? Marathon's 26 miles or whatever. What, what the hell is an ultra marathon? Uh, an ultra marathon is anything longer than 26.2 mile race. And that's typically broken down into a uh, 50 kilometer, 50 mile and hundred mile distances. And how long is it? I mean, is this on multiple days or is this, you, you run that for me? <laughs> yeah. For a, for a 50 miler, the, you know, the top people are coming in six, seven hours, just ridiculous. Um, 
I was never fast. You know, for me, a 50 miler would be nine hours, nine and a half hours typically. Um, yeah. And then a hundred miler is the course cutoff is usually around 30 hours. It's considered uh, an achievement to do it in under 24 to complete it in one day. That's um, an achievement. The, the 24 is the achievement part. Or oh, these people are, these people are lunatic salary. That was one of the things that got <laughs> out of my system real quick um, in terms of, you know, it's easy to get into the mentality that, Oh yeah, if you're military or law enforcement, like these people don't understand, like I started doing those races and there's, 50 year old women out there on a Saturday for fun, kicking my ass on a hundred mile course. Um, oh that's God. where I was like, man, there's some, there's some badasses out here, but yeah, in, in the hundred mile community, a sub 24 finish is considered pretty good. That's kind of the equivalent of doing like a three and a half hour uh, marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things that make me like bourbon more. <laughs> yeah. People say, Hey, you want to do a hundred mile? No, 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 no. But you know what? If, if, but it would be something, uh, listen, I would do that before I do the other thing that you do. Because if, if I don't make the hundred mile or I don't make the 50 mile, I'm just going to probably throw up on myself and collapse, <laughs> which is survivable. The base jumping thing. Now you've done this. Yes. Yes. And do you still do this? Absolutely not. Uh, my <laughs> wife might be listening. I don't know. Seriously. I retired from parachute sports. I met my wife. Um, and I calmed down a lot prior to that. I went through kind of a wild and crazy phase, um, especially yeah. when I was at West Point, kind of in war withdrawal and parachute well, sports were the order of the day for a long time in my life. So I just got to ask you this, man. Like the first time I read about it, heard about it, saw somebody do it, whatever. You climbed up on, I'm going to say something you probably shouldn't have been up on. And you looked down and you said to yourself, this is going to be cool. Uh, how much planning went into crosswinds, updrafts, downdrafts, or is this just one of those, I need a rush, I'm just going to go? No, it's it's kind of fascinating because it's a really technical sport, particularly in America, because other places in the world, you know, if you go to Europe um, or other places to jump, there's these big legal cliffs where you can jump and track away from the object. Um, and, and the higher you are, generally the safer it is. There's more time to fix things. There's more time to track. Uh, fly away from an object before you deploy your parachute. Mm. America really, really hates space jumping. Um, there's yeah. only, there's one place, Twin Falls, Iowa, or excuse me, Twin Falls, Idaho, where it's legal. And that's where base jumpers come to train. That's where I got, I did a course there. I did my first 45 jumps off the Perrine Bridge, um, which is a little under 500 feet tall. And then I went out and started linking up with local crews. But America, most of the objects by international standards are considered dirty low. So it's routine here to be jumping from a, you know, 230 foot antenna versus, uh, you know, it's always at night. You're always like hiding from the cops, trying to sneak in, sneak out. Yeah. Was one um, of them on the Hudson? Was one of them on the Hudson? I actually, my, my home object when I was at West Point was an antenna. You can see it from anywhere on campus. Um, it's just east of campus across the Hudson. And it's a uh, 360 foot antenna that from the top, you're looking over, you know, the Hudson and West Point, And that's where I did a decent amount of jumps while I was there. So last question on that. Did you wear one of those little flying squirrel outfit things where you could kind of glide in a direction or is it just, you know, you, how does that work? How do you steer before the, before the parachutes deployed? You say so, tracking away. 
uh, for tracking away, it's basically a body position where your legs are rigid, you're bent over slightly at the waist, and you kind of have your arms out at your sides to cup air. And as you gain speed and skydiving, you could fly all day with it. Base jumping, you're tracking in a subterminal environment, slightly trickier, but you can still, if you have a long delay, you know, a, a five, eight second delay before you have to pull, um, you can get as much out, uh, distance from the object horizontally as possible, which is handy because you're Every once in a while, you'll have an off-heading opening, which could, you know, your parachute just blasts open flying the wrong way. Um, you can, it's very easy at that point to impact the object, which happened to me once. Uh, I've narrowly avoided a few more times. You the wings, the yeah, the uh, that aforementioned uh, antenna across from West Point, I had a like a 2 a.m. solo jump, mm. had an off-heading opening, couldn't turn it. I was, I, I took the jump too low, so the freestanding antennas get wider at the base. Uh, ergo, the longer you fall, the closer you are to the object when your parachute opens. And I, um, you know, obviously I was in a, in a great place in my life. So I took it like real, real low, um, open, had a 180 off heading, was just flying towards the antenna. I tried to slip away and then didn't have enough time impacted the framework and my <laughs> antenna was just hung up or my, my parachute was just hung up. And this is an object I've had cops come to before, um, while I was at the top. So I had to just climb inside the framework, take my gear off, and it had been raining earlier, so the metal's wet, just climb up the, uh, the framework structure of this antenna to recover my parachute in full view of like the red glowing lights on the antenna, hoping that nobody showed up. Um, Holy and, shit. Yeah, do like a self-rescue from the side of it. Man, no wonder your wife told you those days are over. <laughs> Holy <laughs> man. I, I've known you. I've never knew that. I never knew you impacted the thing and got hung up. That's like something out of a, out of a crazy movie. You're lucky you're not dead. I don't know how you did that, but, but I, I will say this. The reason I brought that up and I, I want everybody to listen, like, you know what, if you're a person who's looking for a good book to read, you're looking for something that's going to grab your attention. It's going to hook you and bring you in. Listen to this conversation we're having. Okay. Listen to what he just, <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that's in the books and it's coming from somebody who did this crazy shit and man, there's nothing better than reading a story where somebody has done some of it and, and, uh, and can give you that, that, that only that, that experience or that kind of explanation that only a person that done it has given, you know? So in, in one of the last things I want to, I want to touch on, we have, you have three series. I have the American mercenary series which has one, two, three, four, six, about six or seven books in it. The Greatest Enemy, Offer of Revenge, Dark Redemption, Vengeance Calling, The Suicide Cartel, and Terminal Objective. You have the Spider Heist series, the Spider Heist, Sky Thieves, and the Manhattan Job. And now Shadow Strike series, the first of which was Enemies of My Country, which I just read. And correct me if I'm wrong, Last Target Standing is in the works, right? Yes? Yes. And this is the one, the Shadow Strike series is the one you have a, an arc of 10 books in. Yes. That's your plan. Yep. Wow. Well, I can minimum. tell you. Minimum. Minimum. Nice. I, uh, I can tell you I will be reading them because uh, the first one got me. Um, I, uh, I was in really from page three. I texted you that morning. I said, <laughs> I, I won't tell everybody what I said, but I, I, I was in right away. <laughs> It was the best reader feedback I think I've ever gotten. Yeah, yeah. But it was, I mean, literally, I got up in the morning, just kind of like you do. I do a pour over coffee. Um, there's, a, there's a coffee comp company out there that uh, is going to be announced soon. 
which I will bring up on a future episode, which I am testing all that coffee. And uh, I make my pour over. I sat down. You had sent me the book. I, I, I sat down and I started reading, man. Uh, three pages in, I was, I knew it. I just knew it. I, and I can tell sometimes in a book, and there was a few technical things you threw in there, and I know you. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to stop this. This is one of those ones I'm going to blast through. And I did three days, which is for me is like unheard of. You know, I get too much other things going on and, you know, I got that, there's a shiny quarter ADD thing going. So, and a two-year-old. So between all that, um, for me to do that in three days was, was something, but it hooked me and I would strongly, uh, recommend everybody check it out, especially now the news sucks. Movies suck. There's nothing out there. I'm tired of watching Marvel comics. On on the website for Seven River, one of the things I, they they talked about, which I thought was really good, was was about stories, and how you know story how great stories are, and how they they take you away sometimes from reality. They can bring you to a sad place, happy place, exciting place. Your stuff always brings me to the edge of the seat type thing, and uh, I want to see what's next. Sometimes I think I can predict what's next, and a lot of times there's like a, there's curveballs, and you're like, holy shit. You know, it, it happens right in front of you. It happens and it's fast moving. I particularly like that. I'm, I'm one of those people that like that. So uh, I just, um, I can't, I can't say it enough. Check out uh, Jason Casper. Uh, check out his books. I, I really think you ought to um, check them out. Uh, one of, can you give us the web website where they can, uh, they can check it out? Sure. My, my website is uh, jason-casper.com. It's Casper with a K. Uh, that's got all my books, all my links. Um, if you're skeptical, you can sign up for the email list and get a free uh, free novella called The Night Stalker Rescue, which is a direct prequel to The Enemy is My Country and uh, Try Before You Buy. That's awesome. And also check out Severn River Publishing. Go to their website check them out. It's S-E-V-E-R-N, Severn River Publishing. You can see some of their other authors and uh, Jason is on there as well. And they give a nice bio and explanation of, uh, of everything there. Uh, Jason, man, I want to thank you uh, for coming on. This is, a, this is a really welcomed addition, a little change of pace from what we normally do. We get a little, we get a little in, in depth on current events and none of them are any good. The, the topics that we pick are controversial. So I think this is kind of a nice breath of fresh air talking about uh, what you're doing. Uh, everybody, this is Jason Casper. I want you uh, just, I want you to remember his name because uh, these books are something that once you start reading, you're not going to be able to stop. He is a, uh, a hero in this country, uh, an American service member, a captain in the United States army and uh, was in our special forces and, and served with honor overseas. And, uh, you know, we owe it to all of you guys to take a look at what you're doing and, and, uh, and, and jump in. So again, I want to thanks. Thank you for being on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Howie. It's a, always a pleasure talking to you. All right, man. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. All right, brother. See you, man.